Well, welcome everybody to Downtown Harbor Church. If it is your first time here, my name is John. I am the lead pastor. Appreciate you guys coming on out. You know, in the first service we talked about this and we kind of forgot to do it here, but you know, speaking of volunteers, you just we don't want to spotlight volunteers every once in a while because I think it's just important to know who's working around here. But we got a guy, his name is Brady, he's 13. He's the one who runs all my slides, keeps all this going. And today, he rode his bike here by himself at like, what, 7 in the morning when it was 52 degrees because he just so loves to serve at the local church. I just thought that was amazing. I thought you guys should know. Yeah, give me a I mean, this, it's very inspirational for me. It's so encouraging to see people give back in that kind of a way. But if it is your first time here, welcome. We are in week two of this series that we're calling The God's Honest Truth. And over the course of the next couple of weeks, we're going to be taking a look at these moments in time, these sort of moments throughout time, and these moments in our lives when Jesus steps into our lives to expose us to what we're calling the God's honest truth. And the God's honest truth is really, or let's say are really, these truths about God. Um, They're truths about the world and how it operates. And sometimes they're even these truths about ourselves. And the thing with these truths, and we talked about this a little bit last week, when it comes to these truths, these could be brand new truths to us that we never heard these things before. And when we hear it, it's just life-changing. It blows our minds. Sometimes these could be truths that we were taught when we were young, and maybe we've just forgotten about them. Maybe they've kind of fallen along the wayside, or or maybe we've just plain ignored them. And sometimes these could be truths that we just don't want to believe. They they could be truths that we just don't agree that they're true, sort of regardless of what Scripture may or may not say. And based on how we react and respond when presented with the God's honest truth can really change the direction and the quality of our life. Jesus says it like this in John 8. If you hold, and some translations say remain or abide or perhaps even pause, but if you hold to my teaching, that God's honest truth, you are really my disciples. Meaning he would say, even though my teaching, even though the God's honest truth is tough to hear sometimes, even though it might make you feel uncomfortable at times, even though it might appear to be impractical or perhaps even unattainable, maybe it's countercultural, perhaps even politically incorrect. But if you will hold, right? If, if you will allow the God's honest truth to wash over you, if you will lay down your preconceived notions, perhaps even your misconceptions, and you allow the God's honest truth to penetrate your heart, then you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. And so what we're doing in this series is we are examining these particular moments in time when Jesus dropped some truth on some people. And those individuals who had the courage to embrace that God's honest truth, they saw with their own eyes firsthand that it can absolutely transform your life and set you free. So today, what I want to do, I want to introduce you to a guy who was... I would say holding on to a truth about eternal life that really wasn't a truth, at least not in full. 
And in the process, when Jesus exposed this man to the God's honest truth about eternal life, he ended up exposing something about this man, something going on in his life, a truth about this man that he never knew. And it was awkward. And it made him feel very uncomfortable. But I want to show you, so let's check this out. Let's dive in. We are going to be in Mark chapter 10, and we're going to start in verses 17. So it says this, as Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. A little unusual. And he says, good teacher, what must I do? Keyword do. What must I do to inherit eternal life? So based on this question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? This man appears to be seeking what I'll call assurance when it comes to eternal life. I think we could argue that he, you know, he must have done all that he knows how to do to, you know, secure a spot on the other side, but he still doesn't have that assurance that he's reserved that spot, so to speak. And at nighttime, when he lays his head on that pillow, he just doesn't have that peace. And so he's coming to Jesus. Notice, he's not coming to Jesus because he thinks he needs a savior. Rather, he's coming to Jesus, this good teacher, to find out what else must I do to save myself. Now, notice how he calls Jesus a good teacher. As Americans, as you know, English speakers, we sort of look at this and gloss right over it. Right? You know, not really that important. We've heard Jesus being called the good shepherd, so... Now he's a good teacher, that makes sense. But this particular adjective, good, is very unusual here. In fact, according to theologians, we have no record, literally no record, of any other rabbi in the Old Testament, in the Jewish Talmud, in historical documents, of any other rabbi, a teacher, being described as being a good teacher. And the reason is that this particular word good actually means sinless. It actually means complete goodness. And so when this guy calls Jesus a good teacher, that's a big meatball. He's just left out there to hang. And Jesus doesn't miss it. In fact, he latches onto it and he zones right into it. He goes, whoa, 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 whoa. Why do you... uh, Call me good? I mean, I just, I just heard you call me good. Why do you call me good? No one is good except for God alone. So are you saying that I'm... I mean, are you implying uh, that you think that I'm... Because it sounds a lot. So anyway, we've got... You know, this is Jesus not, what I would say, denying his divinity... Rather, what he's doing is he's inviting this man to actually think about what he's just said. Because this guy, he stumbled upon a truth that I don't think he realized he's even stumbled upon. So he comes to Jesus, right? We got this guy. And he's coming to Jesus to find out what has he got to do to lock down a spot in heaven. Because whatever he's done so far doesn't seem to be enough. And Jesus hears this request and he plays along. So he goes, all right, well, you know the commandments. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. 
You shall not give false testimony. You shall not defraud. Honor your father and your mother. So what Jesus is doing here is he's quoting to this man the Old Testament. And this guy's listening. And I think he's getting like a little agitated. I think he's even getting a little frustrated. And all of a sudden it's like, Jesus, Jesus, stop, 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 stop. Teacher, he goes, I've obeyed all of these commands since I was young. Essentially, Jesus, Jesus, I've done all these things, but I still don't feel like I've got eternal life. So as the good teacher, would you tell me, please, what, what else must I do? What must I do? And I love this next line. It says that Jesus looked at him and loved him. He looks at this guy who is sincere. I mean, mean, this man is on his knees before Jesus. We're dealing with a very sincere man here, but he's blind to the truth. And Jesus loves him. He has compassion for this man. Because Jesus could see that not only does this man not know the truth about God, not only does he not know the truth about eternal life, he doesn't know the truth about himself. And so Jesus decides that he's going to expose this man to the God's honest truth. He's going to shine his spotlight into this man's heart, and oof, it's going to be bright. And it's going to make this man feel very uncomfortable. And it's going to force this man to think about how he needs to reprioritize everything that he does. But if he'll just hold, if he'll just remain, if he will allow the God's honest truth to penetrate his heart, he will learn something about himself, which hopefully will cause him to seek out the truth about Jesus. So Jesus says, all right, well, there is still one thing you haven't done. Guy's like, finally. (laughs) That's why I'm here, Jesus, right? I nailed those 10 commandments, not a problem. Give me the 11th because it sounds like you got one more. What is it? Let me know. I'm going to do that one thing better than anybody has ever done this one thing before. I got my paper. I got my pen. I'm ready to go, Jesus. Lay it on me. What do you got? Jesus says, all right. I want you to go. All right, got it. What else? And sell all your possessions. I'm sorry, what was that? It's a little windy out here, Jesus. I'm not sure I caught exactly what you said. Could you? No, no, no. I I, I want you to go, and I want you to sell all your possessions. You're You're not writing this down. You do that, and you'll have... You give all the money to the poor, he would say, and you'll have treasure in heaven. Go, sell all your possessions, give the money to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And once you've done all of that, then come follow me. This is certainly an odd response to a question about finding eternal life, isn't it? I mean, if you're a Christian in the room, we almost want to say, "Mm, that's not even the right answer. (laughs) 
I mean, I mean, if, I mean, if, like as a Christian, if someone came up to you and said, hey, John, let me ask you a question. You're, you're a Christian, right? You follow Jesus? Yeah. I just want to know. I mean, I've just been racking my brain. Can you tell me, please, how do I find eternal life? You would never go, well, step one, sell everything you got. You know, then go to church and follow Jesus. You, you, wouldn't, you wouldn't say that. It doesn't sound like the right answer. But what if it is? See, because what Jesus is doing here is absolutely brilliant. I mean, it really is. Remember, part of the reason that Jesus came to this earth, other than dying on the cross, was to show us the truth about who God is and about who we are. And in this response, he does both. Because he's dealing with a man who, for him, wants eternal life. And he believes that eternal life is somewhere you go when you die. And Jesus wants him to realize that eternal life, it isn't a destination. Eternal life is not just some place you go when you die. Eternal life is not just heaven. Eternal life isn't just about living forever somewhere else. It's actually far more than that. And it's way better than that. See, what Jesus wants this man to recognize and what he wants all of us to recognize is that eternal life is a relationship. You see, God didn't send his son Jesus Christ into this world in order to establish another list of rules and regulations. He didn't send Jesus Christ into this world to start another code of behavior, another code of conduct, another system to work. That's what this guy wanted. Jesus was sent into this world in order to establish a relationship with us. Later in his ministry, Jesus would actually define eternal life in a prayer that he made to the Father. He goes, you want to know what eternal life is? Now this is eternal life. That they, that means you, that means me, that they may know you. That's eternal life. That they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Now that's an amazing verse. You may have never heard this verse before. Perhaps for many of you as Christians, this is eye-opening. This might cause you to redefine how you think about eternal life. But this is how Jesus sees it. And so when he's looking at this man who wants eternal life, he goes, if you want to know how to get eternal life, I'm going to tell you. In fact, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to give you the opportunity of a lifetime. I'm inviting you, and I don't do this for everybody, but I'm doing it for you. I'm inviting you to come and follow me. I'm inviting you to become one of my disciples. As I invited Matthew over there, as I invited John over there, I'm inviting you. See, what I'm doing is I'm inviting you into a relationship with me, and you're going to learn that eternal life isn't about a destination It's about a relationship with me. But here's what I know about you, my friend. 
Here's the God's honest truth about you, my friend. So buckle up. Your primary loyalty, it's not God. It's your stuff. It's your stuff. And scripture is very clear. God wants all of your loyalty. He wants all of your love. And in order for you to become the person that I want you to become, and in order for you to have the relationship with me and your heavenly father, like I want you to have, we must deal with your primary loyalty first. Matthew, he had to give up tax collecting to follow me. John over there, he had to walk away from fishing to follow me. You, you got to sell your stuff. See, I want to disconnect those who are, I want to disconnect people, shall I say, from the thing that they are primarily loyal to and connect them to their heavenly father. So, go. Sell all your stuff. Give the money to the poor. And then come and follow me. In that moment, as Jesus shined the God's honest truth into this man's heart, he learned something about himself. He learned a truth that he didn't know existed. He learned that his wealth owned him. It owned him to such a degree that when Jesus Christ, the God of this universe, offered him the opportunity of a lifetime, he said no. Because for as much as he thought that he wanted eternal life, there was something he wanted more. The story concludes. It says, at this, the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. Right? Reminds me of that meatloaf song. I'd do anything for love, but I won't do that. Jesus, listen, you know me. You know me. I, I love a good command. I love it. Doing better than anybody else, but, but I just have too much stuff. I have too much to manage, so mm, no. Thank you. Now, I want to make sure we don't misunderstand the point of this passage, okay? Because Jesus is not saying that money is bad. Scripture is very clear. Money's not a problem. Having a lot of money, not a problem. Having stuff, not an issue. Having a lot of nice stuff, not a problem. Jesus is not saying that, hey, if you really love me, you got to sell all your stuff because I could see some of you squirming in your seats. Like that's what we're going to hit you with at the end, right? You really love Jesus? Liquidate. That's not what Jesus is saying here. What Jesus is saying is that God wants your love and he wants your loyalty. He wants your heart more than anything else. And nothing competes more for our hearts than our love for money. Nothing. Nothing competes more for our loyalty. Nothing competes more for our devotion. Nothing prevents us from following Christ with our whole heart, with everything that we are, with everything that we do, that whatever you need me to do, Jesus, I'll do. Wherever you need me to go, Jesus, I'll go. Nothing competes with God more for our heart than our love our pursuit of, and our management of money. It's why Jesus famously one time said, no one, and that means nobody, 
no one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot, and that's not a command, that's an observation. You cannot serve both God and money. Which is why there will be many times as Christians in our walk with God, in our journey with Jesus, that he steps into our life to find out who we're actually serving. To see where and with whom our love and loyalties lie. And for some of you, for some of you, God might challenge you that for the first time in your life, he wants you to start tithing. Listen, I blessed you with everything that you have, from your health to your wealth, to your families, to your opportunities, and I am challenging you to give first to my kingdom. Not from what's left over at the end of the month. I'm challenging you to give first to me. And I want you to trust, really trust, that I'll make sure you have everything you need and more. Maybe for some of you, he might tap you on the shoulder and say, listen, for you, I need you to donate to that school fundraiser. And I'm, uh, I'm not talking about buying a raffle ticket. And I don't mean buying that t-shirt that supports the baseball team. I want you, in a generous and sacrificial way, to make a pledge, to impact that generation and generations to come at that school. That's why I gave you what I gave you for such a time as this. Or perhaps from some of you, he may whisper into your ear, I, I want you to help others. Hey, your brother-in-law needs help. And he really needs help. Would you help him? Your child, they're struggling. Would you help them? I need you to help your friend. I need you to help that stranger, that person who's down on their luck. I need you to part with some of your stuff for me. Now, don't misunderstand the point of the loyalty check-in, as I'm calling it. God doesn't want your money. Jesus said, go, sell your stuff, and give it to the poor. He didn't say liquidate everything and bring me the cash. God doesn't want your money. As much as some church may have told you that in the past, he's not interested in your money. That's not what this is about. He wants your heart. He wants all of you. He wants your love. He wants your loyalty. He wants your devotion, all of it, 100% of it. And here's why this is so important for us as Christians. We might begin to assess, shall we say, we might begin to assess the health of our relationship with God. And we say to ourselves, hey, listen, things are pretty good. I mean, listen, I, I, I go to church every week. Honestly, I don't miss. I can't remember the last time that I missed church. I pray all the time. I read the Bible. I'm doing this devotion. I do the Jesus calling. I do this other thing. There's like a video. I'm in a small group. Or, you know, I do all this. Now, I volunteer. 
I actually listen to Christian music in the car, which as we know, according to scripture, gets you bonus points, all right? And the next thing we realize is we start sounding like the guy in the story. Jesus, I've done all that. But then all of a sudden, when God steps into our lives and whispers into our ear, hey, I'm going to need you to part with some of your stuff for me. To build my kingdom, to help other people, to live generously. And we say no. We may have just stumbled upon a very inconvenient truth about ourselves. See, if our response to God's challenge to release the grip on our stuff is met with a, a cringe, if we shrink back from the challenge, or if we come up with an excuse as to why we can't follow Jesus, I think we've learned that maybe, just maybe, maybe, just maybe, we have some divided loyalty. So, what do you do? What's the practical? If it's your first time here at Downtown Harbor Church, every single week we put this word on the screen because we want to make sure you can leave on a Sunday and know exactly what to do with what you've heard. So let me just say this. When you read the scriptures, when you read the gospels, one thing is very clear. Jesus had no qualms, no reservations about talking about money. In fact, 16 out of 38 of his parables have to do with money and possessions. It seems like a lot. See, he knew that money and stuff was a problem for us. He knew that it could have a profound impact on our lives, how we relate to other people, and most importantly, how we relate to our Heavenly Father. Now, when it comes to talking about money, I am not a fan. I don't like it too much. In fact, I don't like it at all. That's why we do it very sparingly here at DHC, because the problem with talking about money is that it can be misinterpreted as a sales pitch. And many of us, me included, we've been burned, perhaps by a local church that seemed like the only thing they wanted was our money. But if you've been here at DHC long enough, you know, you know that's not us. That's not how we do things. No, today, today's about our relationship with God. That and that alone. Because God wants something from us. He does. He wants our love. He wants our loyalty. He wants our heart. He wants our undivided devotion. And I just want to make sure that here at this church, he gets it. That's what he wants. I just want to make sure we're giving it to him. And what's so interesting is that when you look at today's story, you meet a man whose relationship with money caused him. It caused him to miss out on an amazing opportunity. So here's my question for you. This week, and you might just want to think about it for the rest of your life. Are you missing out on divine opportunities? When God taps you on the shoulder or whispers into your ear 
and invites you to part with some of your stuff to help build his kingdom. What he's offering us is a chance to bless others. To use what he's blessed us with to bless others. To help them in their life. Now here's the interesting thing. When we say yes, whatever you need me to do, Jesus, I'll do. Wherever you need me to go, Jesus, I'll go. Whoever you need me to help, Jesus, I'll help. I'm yours. I'm yours. Use me. When we say yes, we are blessed. They're blessed. And God is honored. And it's incredible. But when we say no, we miss out on the blessing. God will find somebody else who's willing to say yes. Our failure to, 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 to submit is not going to stop his work. He'll just find somebody else. But we miss out on a divine opportunity to be used by the creator of this world. Now, maybe one of the reasons that we say no to God is because we're living under the assumption that it's all for our consumption. Okay? And if you believe that everything that comes to you is for you, then you're only going to use it on you. So maybe for some of us this week, we need to begin to rethink who actually owns our stuff. Is it God? Or is it us? Now, maybe for some of you, you, have, you can only say no because you have no choice otherwise. And the reason you have no choice is because you have no financial freedom. We bought too much house. We leased too much car. And we went on too many vacations. And now we have debt. A lot of it. Debt is now our master. I am now a slave to debt. Debt is calling the shots in my life. And even if I wanted to say yes to God, debt is forcing me to say no. So maybe for you, debt is something that you need to get a handle on. See, Jesus spoke about money for a reason. It's a problem. It's a problem. But it doesn't have to be. If we can pause and just let the God's honest truth penetrate our hearts. Let me pray for you. Dearly Father, I want to thank you for the opportunity that we could come together today. Lord, this is not an easy topic for anybody. Because at some level, every single one of us, because we are humans, has a very complicated relationship when it comes to money. And I pray, God, that if you are shining that light of your truth into our hearts, that you would give us the strength to have the courage to embrace it. Lord, that you would set us free from the grip that stuff may have on us so that we are free to love you with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. Because the only thing you do want from us, Lord, is our heart. 
God, and I pray that our stuff or anything from that matter doesn't get in the way of that. Lord, I want to thank you for Jesus. I want to thank you for the gift of eternal life, which begins today as we walk in relationship with him and carries us over into forever. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.